Have you ever asked yourself why we study food? Is that study important? In Why Food Matters, Yale professor Paul Friedman answers that question. We can hear him now. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Paul Friedman. He is the Chester D. Tripp Professor of History at Yale University. He has a number of specialties that he's developed over the years, but one of his specialties is the history of cuisine. And his most recent book is Why Food Matters. Welcome. Thank you, Liz. It's great to be with you. So why don't you tell us why food matters? Well, this book uh, was written for Yale University Press. The publishers have a series called Why X Matters. So like why sculpture matters or why translation matters. But unlike most of the subjects covered in the series, food obviously matters in that you can't live without it. Right. So my job was to get beyond the biological necessity. And I wanted to talk about why it matters culturally to us as individuals and as societies. The meaning of food for our memories, nostalgia, recollection of childhood, identity. You know, you don't realize how much of an American you are until you go to another country where they don't sell peanut butter and then they don't like peanut butter either. Uh, And people who are uh, visiting the United States for the first time are amazed that we use salad dressings, bottled salad dressings that are so sweet or, uh, you know, Chinese Sweet and sour pork has a sour component in China, but not in the US, so (laughs) that sort of thing. And then a second aspect is the importance of food for dealing with many of the challenges that we face in the future, particularly climate and also disease, because food has a big role in climate change and controlling things like the way we uh, produce crops, feed cattle, and get food on the shelves of supermarkets would affect a lot of that. Just a sort of factoid I read the other day, the average produce item in an American supermarket comes from 2,000 miles away. Oh my. So that gives you an idea of why food matters in an everyday and cumulative sense. So did you feel that you were writing this book from an American perspective, or did you try to talk about food and why it matters anywhere? Well, both. So I can't help writing from an American perspective. Most of the readers, although the book is distributed internationally, I assumed were going to be Americans. But I'm very interested, for example, I talk a bit about the ways in which food brings us together 
or serves as a uh, component of ceremonies like, you know, funerals or family occasions. And, and I had a number of foreign examples. I was very struck, for example, by um, a kind of ceremony in Indonesia, in Java, that I remember participating in when I was a student uh, and spent some time over there called Islamatan, where it marks both joyous and unfortunate occasions. So funerals as well as births. And I participated in, an, in a sad one. The woman of the house that I'd lived in uh, had a miscarriage. And this is a ceremony where the men sit on the floor, eat a very traditional meal prepared by the women. They eat it in banana leaves. And the key aspect of this is that unlike, say, an American celebration where you have toasts or moments of silence or some sort of verbal ceremony, nothing is said other than normal small talk. It's the food itself, the occasion itself. Hmm. That sounds very interesting. One of the things that I am most um, interested in that I feel is very often not discussed, although you did discuss this, is food as identity and how immigrants tend to cling to their food when they move someplace else and they have had to not only change the way they dress, the way they live, the way they talk and everything that you can imagine on the everyday life and the thing that they can still control and that reminds them of home is their food. Some uh, of this depends on whether you're living in a city with a lot of other fellow immigrants sufficient to have stores that carry products that you won't find normally. Well, that's uh, certainly true. Yeah. So, you know, at one time it was hard to find uh, fish sauce in supermarkets, but, you know, if you had enough people from Thailand or Cambodia, they could um, patronize specialty stores. On the other hand, some things you can't reproduce. Uh, there's a wonderful book called The Migrant's Tale, uh, Table, rather, The Migrant's Table by Krishnendu Ray, who discusses Bengali immigrants to the United States, and they can't get the fish, the same fish that they have mm -hmm. uh, at home. So that's kind of completely out. There are lots of Indian stores, and you can see, though, that their kids, partly because of school peer pressure, partly because they don't have the same attachment to home, mm -hmm. it's the kids who bring in innovations. And to some extent, things like Thanksgiving, he describes stages of attitudes towards Thanksgiving as an American holiday. One is the first, uh, we don't want to have anything to do with that. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's a huge amount of roasted bird is completely alien and uh, we'll just skip it. And then again, you know, you, you're living here and your kids, uh, everybody asks them what did they have for Thanksgiving or how was their Thanksgiving? So then you, you adopt it to your habits. So you have a smaller bird and you have it uh, in a familiar kind of spiced form. But often immigrant groups after a while just give up and just <laughs> have the cranberry sauce, the pumpkin pie and the whole, the whole thing. Yes, I'm sure that that happens. I mean, that's that gradual letting go and then you know, bringing in what the new, the new home uh, provides. Also, you probably get invited to other people's Thanksgivings 
And so that gives you a sense more of what it's supposed to be and not just the food, although the food obviously is an important part of it. I, yeah. I think no. Thanksgiving is always interesting because that really changes even around the country. I, I don't think that people in the Northeast eat exactly what we eat in the South or uh, in California or something like that. Yeah, or you try to have your regional or ethnic or family innovation. We do it this way. Mm -hmm. But I think ethnic groups also differ as to how resistant they are to assimilation or to put it more positively, how much they preserve their traditions over generations. So that I think with most Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, like my grandparents, the traditional dishes, first of all, became reduced in number. So there became things like gefilte fish or chopped liver, but a lot of other things disappeared. And certainly my parents and I have not held on very fiercely to anything that could be called Eastern European Jewish cuisine, whereas Italians, probably more than any other European immigrants, uh, you know, third generation Italians are still making an awful lot of Italian food. And it's not just because there's a lot of Italian food just out in the general atmosphere, but they're making Italian food according to how their grandmother told them. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's true. Being half Sicilian myself, um, I definitely think that's true. Right, right. And as I've uh, uh, experienced to my great pleasure. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about food as it affects the planet. And there's been a lot of talk about as Western ideas get introduced into lesser developed nations, there's more emphasis on eating meat and other animal proteins. And that, of course, that could have a, a negative effect on the planet. What, what do you think about how you can balance a desire to eat meat, but not necessarily destroy the planet. Yeah, well, this is tough. I mean, there are two kinds of strategies and they're not incompatible. One is to try to figure out a way to have a plant-based or lab-based meat that uh, people like, and that is not regarded as some kind of poor uh, substitute. And the other is to decenter meat, make meat not so much the uh, basic massive presence in the meal, but a flavoring. And I think the latter is being accomplished in many countries through adoption of what inaccurately or accurately is called Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of countries have experienced a boom in meat eating and then a sort of a fall off as uh, affluence is no longer the thing you need to prove, but health becomes a bigger issue. So you see in Europe, after the Second World War, meat eating climbed, reaching a peak in the late 70s or so, and then sort of declining per capita after that. But yeah, this is certainly a problem because countries that have had hundreds of years of meat eating are in no position to say to places like China or um, uh, Indochina uh, or Africa, you know, you shouldn't eat so much meat. Right. It's, uh, yeah, it, it does seem to be a, a difficult balance. 
I do agree with you though, that the health aspect of it and being able to know enough about science and the, and what is considered a healthy diet today is uh, almost more of an indicator of affluence than actually eating tons of meat. Um, uh, being able to go to restaurants that consider themselves uh, vegetable forward or someplace like Madison Park was still charging 300 and something dollars a plate for a totally vegetable tasting menu and things like that. But that I think is feeding into a discourse about hypocrisy and kind of ludicrous dietary correctness. Mm -hmm. that it's so expensive and so ostentatious. What you'd like to see is something where, uh, and I think this is happening despite publicity for things like 11 Madison Park, where people who are not pretentious socially change their diet. And of course, it's, some of it is for health. Some of it is for sustainability. But the word sustainability and its opposite, unsustainability, is important here because a lot of these practices are literally unsustainable. That is, you can't have uh, rainforests cut down uh, indefinitely to pasture cattle uh, for you know, fast food beef indefinitely. And in fact, we are obviously seeing the consequences of that. And so you know, the, the arguments about, well, you'll never persuade people something's going to persuade people because it, it cannot continue like this. Yes. And so is it that the food itself matters? I mean, I, I'm trying to go back to the theme of the book. Um, and I think that food is something that is one of the largest measures of, of what is being, you know, how the climate is being affected. Is, is it food that matters in this or is food just one of the components? It is, is food the lead, the lead problem? It's a very big one. I don't have the statistics at my fingertips, but a huge amount of the world's water goes to agriculture. Uh, a huge amount of the clearance of land goes to agriculture and pasturing. A huge amount of the transport expenses. That, so that includes petroleum, carbon dioxide, exhaust, ocean pollution comes from this transport of products from very far away where they're grown, which makes economic sense, but does not make environmental sense. It's not clear that it really makes economic sense either if you start to factor in things other than very immediate costs. And right. actually, as the supply chain problems now show us, it's probably not good that this perishable stuff comes from so far away. And since we're talking about food and the environment, talking about food and health, do you think that we have, as so many people discuss, sort of eaten ourselves into being sick so that rates of type 2 diabetes and other kinds of systemic diseases are on the rise, uh, high blood pressure, heart disease, all of those things? I, I think that, that that is a problem. And a, a lot of it is a problem of attitude. 
but some of this is a problem of poverty. In other words, the food that's least expensive is the food that is uh, most damaging, from fast food to junk food to food with a lot of sugar in it. And I think the food industry bears some responsibility for this in its advertising and product development. The federal government bears some responsibility for this because it's been kind of spineless, spineless in its regulation. But we have these paradoxes where often the people who are panicking about health are the people who are actually pretty healthy. And the people who are sick are receiving rather little attention other than lectures to stop eating fast food. Right, with nothing else suggested um, to take its place. Yeah, and to take its place would be food that turns out to be more expensive. So fresh produce is more expensive than fast food. It's not exclusively out of ignorance that people have a bad diet. It's because hamburger helper and, you know, ramen, instant ramen are cheap. Right, right. Totally true. It is. Many a college student has lived on ramen. (laughs) Indeed, yeah. (laughs) So what about... What about food as it relates to people's place in society? Do you think that food still has that same way of differentiating people now that food is maybe less expensive than um, it used to be? So that if you were a peasant, you were probably not eating the same food as somebody who was of the nobility. Yeah. Some of the question, of course, is did you want to eat that food? That's also a question, um, yes. So there are other points of division besides class, and some of them are sort of entertaining. I'm always very interested in at least American ideas about what women prefer as opposed to men. Mm -hmm. And a very longstanding supposed preference female preference is sugar and sweet desserts somewhat Eating later bonbons all day that sort of yeah thing. or ice cream you know uh, chocolate doesn't count in your diet or actually compatible with a later trend that dates only from the late 19th century and that is uh, that women are supposed to like light food things like salads mm-hmm. and that men like meat or uh, and you know, women like white wine and men like red wine. Exactly. Men like hearty food. And you see this a lot in women's magazines, particularly addressed to young women in the early 20th century of uh, don't serve your boyfriend things with mayonnaise and whipped cream and jello. Uh, save that for your girlfriends. You need to keep uh, man-friendly food like, uh, um, you know, barbecued baked beans, curry, spare ribs, mm-hmm. chili. Chili is uh, a big item. So where did this start? It's actually a little later than you would think, but some of these things come together. So my grandmother uh, used to take us to a restaurant uh, called Schraft's which was a ladies' restaurant, sort of a genteel chain of restaurants in the Northeast that featured light entrees like sandwiches, kind of tea sandwiches, salads, cottage cheese, which my grandmother would order, which was considered to be a light 
food in the 1950s and early 60s. And then my grandmother would have a banana split or a sundae. <laughs> so she really conformed to that stereotype. And the restaurant shrafts also conformed to that stereotype. I think now things like vegetarianism or veganism are associated uh, with women. Uh, I was fascinated to see an article and you know, I don't set much store by this, but at least its symbolic significance attracts me. An article in the New York Times that said that a trend was that uh, young women having the first meal with a, a guy would order steak and that this was a signal that she was not uh, fussy about food and that the guy wasn't so concerned about her diet, but that if she was going to declare herself to be a vegetarian, the next step was to tell him, don't order that chili. That's not good for you. <laughs> and so her ordering steak showed that he was kind of safe from those kinds of interventions. Again, I don't, I don't say this is a rule, but it is an interesting way of showing that food has symbolic meaning in all sorts of aspects of life that we might not expect. Oh, yes, I can see an analogy to that here in the New Orleans area where you, a woman would go in to the restaurant and order the fried seafood platter. And it would have all this fried food and potatoes, and French fries, and all that sort of thing. Clearly, you're not going to be telling people that's not good for you. Yeah, or you could have the string bean salad, uh, and it would be equally satisfying. Right. <laughs> yes, totally. Huh. It it is really interesting. I mean, I I certainly know my husband is a white wine drinker, and I'm a red wine drinker. And you give the order to the, the wait staff and inevitably they come back and they give me the white wine and they give him the red wine. Exactly, exactly. Always. That's very interesting. And that shows you that there, there is an expectation and that merely because you said something there doesn't break it. Right, exactly. It's as though they get the order right in the sense that they bring the right, the right wine but they never put it down correctly. We have, I mean, it's a standing joke. We bet each other, okay, what's going to happen this time? Because it's so predictable. And, and would you say it's like 90% of the time they do it erroneously? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And it's just so ingrained and it makes no sense. I mean, there's no actual reason why that would be. <laughs> so I think the whole idea of uh, food, one of the things that to me is really, really very under discussed has to do with hunger and also the weaponizing of food in wars and things where people are cut off from food and sort of brought to their knees because people will starve. And to me, that really, really underscores how important food is to us. Obviously, that is based on needing food in order to survive. But the fact that we use that in order to indiscriminately starve everyone who is somewhere, I, I just find that to be really interesting and showing how much we really know how important food is that we, we will just deprive people of it. Yeah, 
in fairness, uh, this is something that armies have been doing, you know, for millennia. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's just yeah. they have more power. The technology of uh, destruction and blockading is better. But yeah, the medieval sieges usually didn't succeed in dismantling or destroying the walls. They succeeded just by starving the people well, uh, into surrendering. Yes. And it makes you wonder whether the wall is a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> yes. Well, people often take too much comfort in what might be considered technological protection. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So as we're coming to the end of our time here, what do you think the future has to hold in terms of any changes in the way food is important to us? Or do you think that these have been relatively, um, relatively the same, even though the same issues, even though the way they may manifest themselves has changed? So has it been the same over time of food and religion, food as a as an offering, food as uh, a representation of class or, or race or religion or whatever. Do you think all those things as we go into the future will basically be the same? I would say there's certain things that are constant. So food and companionship, mm -hmm. uh, food and pleasure, which mm -hmm. is I think underrated. Uh -huh. um, but the urgency, it depends a lot on the urgency of change. It's hard for me to envisage that in you know, 30, 40 years in the future, the degree of globalization, variety, and changes in fashion will be the same. But um, it may be that there are sort of technological fixes that we don't know about that work better than I would expect they will, that allow some of the same practices and preferences to be continued in a more sustainable fashion. For the near to medium term, I think certain trends like vegetable forward are going to spread, continue to spread. A uh, percentage of products that are organic will you know, rise. But a lot of these things, you know, there are trends that have been in existence like organic food since the 1970s. And they still, I mean, you know, uh, they still haven't displaced the majoritarian culture. So organic food has risen from like zero to 8%. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, 8% is a lot. On the other hand, it's not a very impressive as a percentage isn't. Yes, 92% is a lot more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, but, but it is also the case that food continues and will probably always continue to represent something, even if what it represents changes or how we view it changes. It's it, it also, it makes you wonder whether people as they are being assaulted by new ideas will cling more to their old ones because they don't want to change. Yeah, and they, uh, threats of change were a theme of many science fiction uh, stories uh, that I grew up with and uh, movies like Soylent Green, mm -hmm. um, things like uh, Brave New World. All these predictions of the future involved either pills that were substitutes for food mm -hmm. or some kind of horrible slop mm -hmm. or 
the in, in Orwell's 1984, only a few privileged people get to eat things like, oh, you know, jam and real tea. So mm-hmm. the the uh, nightmare and a lot of people who uh, suspect that, you know, the government is going to take away their meat, just like it wants to take away their guns, are recollecting or participating in the same fear. And there is a fear that a post-apocalyptic kind of world will not have very yummy food. And, and not every aspect of that is completely unrealistic. Right. I mean, there really have been threats to take away sugar. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And the substitute is not the same thing because right. if the right. substitute was the same, substitutes were the same thing, then the use of sugar would be much less than it is. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, we did a program with the World War II Museum here in New Orleans, and we took recipes from ration books, of uh, the little pamphlets that came with the rations, and actually used pans that were from the period. And things were, um, it was amazing to me. We found a book that Domino Sugar had put out in 1945, I believe. And it was lose weight with Domino Sugar. And in those recipes, things like muffins and cakes and cookies, and they weren't, I mean, I checked with other cookbooks to see whether the proportion of sugar to flour was altered in this lose weight book. And it wasn't. It was amazing to me how much less sugar in proportion to flour in the 1940s cookbooks there was in use as there is today. And so the sweetness level has really changed. And also the size of the muffin tins was much smaller. Uh, So, uh. So that you are not only having less sugar in proportion to the flour in the overall recipe, but the, the size of the portion was much smaller. And we did one um, recipe that was in, that was supposed to feed six. And we had a casserole dish that was from the period and making the recipe, it fit perfectly into this casserole dish. And people thought that at most it could feed three skimpily and two in proportion, you know, in the way we would feed people today. They couldn't believe that that was a a portion for six. And uh, it was really interesting because they got to see it. They got to see it in action because it's really hard to make people believe that these changes are real, that, that portion sizes are larger, that more sugar is being used in recipes or whatever. But if you can prove it to them, they have to see it with their own eyes. It's very interesting to see how they react. Apparently, the size of bagels has tripled since 1990. Oh, my gosh. Just since 1990. Right. Right. That uh, I mean, some of this is that the producers and certainly restaurants in figuring out portion size, the cost of the food is... Uh, minimal compared to other considerations in the case of restaurants, things like labor, rent, insurance, and they need to reach a price point. 
Same with the bagel. They want to charge you, you know, $2 for the bagel. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't uh, really affect their bottom line if they give you more bagel. Right, right. So the bagel is larger. And if you tell people, uh, they might sort of, if they're old enough, recollect that bagels used to not be this kind of baseball mitt-sized affair. Mm -hmm. But um, it sneaks up on you. And so you have to do these radical experiments like the one you just described to prove it. Right, right. Even discussing the two martini lunch, when you look at the martini glasses that were used at the time that people were talking about two martini lunches um, and, and what a martini glass looks like today, you really are drinking two martinis <laughs> when you drink one instead of two. It's really fun. Uh, just to know all that is just interesting to me. So thank you very much, Paul. This has been a really interesting conversation. And uh, thank you for writing this book because the book is just fascinating. Thank you. It's always a pleasure talking to you. I always learn something. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.